Ellen and I began our teaching career in New York City. Uh, we, we met there through a program called Teach for America. Uh, New York City is truly a city like no other. As it's been said, it's a city that never sleeps. There seems never to be a moment in that city when there's not noise or uh, a cacophony of sound. Um, Ellen and I both went to college in bigger cities. My wife went to school in, uh, in, outside of Atlanta, and I went to school in Philadelphia. Uh, and yet New York is more jarring than even those places to your senses. Uh, one evening, my beloved wife went to a restaurant uh, for dinner with some, some friends, um, and someone in the restaurant thought it would be a brilliant idea to take a little pack of black cat firecrackers to light them on fire in the restaurant and watch people run from them. Well, when the uh, firecrackers went off, everyone who was from New York City hit the ground because they thought it was gunfire. My wife, on the other hand, was like, what's that over there? Um, it's interesting how when you're from the city, you're kind of trained by different sounds. You have to kind of train yourself to hear different things. Uh, those who were with my wife uh, were real, realized that um, it, was not a, it was not a good thing to run towards or look at things that could be gunfire. There are certain sounds that we must react to, certain sounds that demand a reaction. The scream of one of your children, the security alarm in your home at night, a train whistle, right, Bobby, over the railroad tracks, a phone call in the middle of the night. Certain sounds penetrate our ears in the midst of all the noise of this world. You know, we live in a world of beeps and buzzes and, and bangs. And when you live in a city, the police, even the police and the fire sirens just become background noises. But there's sounds. There's certain things that just kind of pierce through all that noise. The word of God is that noise that pierces through and is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, the piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, deserving the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word must pierce through the, the worldly clamor to open our eyes to the one to whom we must give an account. And my prayer is for you this morning that the penetrating power of God's word will pierce your heart, will break your love of this world and encourage you to hold fast to Christ. There's five points this morning. The first one is the piercing word brings judgment. The piercing word brings judgment. You can find this in the outline provided for you in the bulletin. In each of Jesus' letters to the seven churches of Asia, he begins with a particular description of himself, the, 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 John, the vision that John had in John 1, 9 through 20. Uh, the vision of Jesus really is therefore outlined the whole kind of helps us understand the whole purpose of these seven letters. Now, although each letter is written to a specific church, we know that from the end of the letter, it says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, knowing that each individual's letter is to, to be applied to the church throughout history. So Jesus begins his letter to the, the saints at Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged Sword. Now, now, Pergamum was the center of the Roman government and the imperial cult of worship in Asia Minor. The city boasted that they were the throne warden of the worship of Caesar. 
it not only defended the worship of cedar, but it really defended the freedom of worshiping all sorts of deities. It was a polytheistic city. I would say much like maybe a New York City today or a, uh, a San Francisco or Los Angeles. Jesus confronts this many ways city by proclaiming that he and he alone is the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. The sword imagery throughout the scriptures is meant to be an image of judgment. Jesus was going to judge this pagan city with his word. We know in, in Romans 13 that the ultimate authority given in this world to take and uh, to take life is given to the state. They're given the sword to execute judgment against lawlessness. Christians, on the other hand, individually are not called to repay evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good individually. And then we, we leave it to the state and ultimately by the hand of, of God to execute just, the justice against our persecutors. Jesus here is reminding the church that he is the one who wields the sword of judgment. He will judge the kingdom of Satan. He will judge the apostate who, who abandons the faith handed down from the apostles. Jesus is the sovereign one over all history because he holds the two-edged sword. And he will cut through all the worldly philosophy and the pagan religion of our day. Now, if you're in the church and you're hearing this imagery, you should both feel comforted and convicted. The letter is, as we just read, is dominated by Jesus rebuking this church for their permissive spirit of false teaching. And not only a permissive spirit of false teaching, but a permissive lifestyle of, those, of, of that false teaching. So Jesus spends much of this letter rebuking the church for drifting from the one true gospel and then calling them to repentance to the church. And yet here he's also trying to encourage the faithful. Those who never bowed a knee to Balaam or the Nicolaitans. Even in the most dysfunctional churches, and I believe that we probably all have been part of dysfunctional churches or a, a period of dysfunction in a relatively healthy church, there are always true saints. And there's always saints who are drifting. And Jesus says here to these mixture of true and drifting saints, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, there's many possible options what this Satan's throne means. Some would say it's a geographical picture of what Pergamum looked like. It kind of looked like a, a throne on a hill. It's probably most likely a reference to uh, Pergamum being the, the center of the Roman government and the imperial cult. As we see Revelation unfold, that is the main persecution that comes, is, is Christians' willingness to stand against uh, the worship of Caesar. So how comforting would it have been for Christians to hear Jesus say, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. I know how challenging it is for you to stand up in the midst of intense, violent, and aggressive emperor worship. I know the depth of the sin of the city in which you live. I know how comforting it is that we have a God who knows exactly where we are. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every, every beat of your heart. So he knows the problems you bring into this room this morning. And regardless of your trial, God knows what you're going through. So I pray that you would take comfort in whatever battle you're facing 
and that God is not blind to it. So not only does this piercing word bring judgment, as we see throughout this whole entire letter, but it also brings joy. It also brings joy. God does not only have a knowledge of the saints of Pergamon, but he also has a joy because they remain steadfast to the truth, even amid trial. And we'll see here that they didn't all do this, but for, for, for a lot, lot of part, they did not deny Christ. Look what the second half of verse 13 says. It says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, the church, although it had some, some issues, as we'll get to, they also still trusted in the name of Christ. It was still a church. They, they even trusted in the name of Christ when people around them were being killed for their faith. Antipas here, there's no scholarly agreement who this Antipas was, but we do know that he, was, he received the same name as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was the faithful witness. He lived unto death. As we move closer to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we're reminded of the faithful witness that God had throughout history that held the name of, of Christ. Uh, John Huss was a preacher of the early 15th century. Uh, after reading the writings of, of John Wycliffe, who, who really came to Christ in his, in his late 80s, early to late 80s, he became impassioned with the authority and the beauty of the Word of God. He lived during rampant immorality among the clergy of the Catholic Church. And as he started preaching against their, their false living, denying Christ with their lives, he was labeled a heretic and sentenced to death. So as he was chained to a stake like a dog, this is what he said. My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this one for my sake. So why should I be ashamed of this rusty chain? What I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. He held fast to the name of Jesus, even in the midst of death. Now, sometimes we have a hard time understanding that because we don't have that same challenge here in America. But, but trust me, beloved, there are, there are brothers and sisters right now who face that, that trial. Right now, there are brothers and sisters who, who bear the name of Christ, who are, who are one with us, who, who, are, who are tempted to deny Christ. But they say, no, what I proclaim with my mouth, I will seal with my blood. Huss knew that this two-edged sword would continue to pierce the hearts of Europe. When Huss, the, the name Huss in Czech means goose. Uh, so he was known as the goose father. Uh, when he was sentenced to death, this is what he first said. He said, you may roast the goose. But a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing will not be able to silence. And we know on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther hit those 95 theses on the wall and the world has not been silenced. Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has been recovered. The gospel of grace through Christ alone, through faith alone, in the word of God alone. Puss had confidence in the word of God and the word of his God. His joy in the word fueled his willingness to defend it, even with his own blood. Simple question. Do you have a joy with the word of God? Is reading the word of God a delight or is it a burden? Do you constantly feel guilty for how little attention you pay the word? Or do you 
desire more and more to know God in His Word. I pray that we would, would be ones who delight in the Word of God. Maybe, maybe even this afternoon, if you're struggling with your own desire to read God's Word, that you would read Psalm 119. All the verses. And just meditate on what God has spoken about His Word. The third point, Jesus, the piercing Word brings division. The piercing Word brings division. Now, many in our day would say that Jesus Christ came to bring peace. And we know that he did come to bring peace in one sense, but he also came to bring division. The word of God continues to divide. There are churches in our day who are beginning to waver on the word of God. So I pray that we would learn from this church, this church at Pergamon, that we would not be ones who start to, to drift in the truth of God's word. That we'd hold fast to it. Look what God's word says in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Now, it's interesting. We go back to, to the church at Ephesus. I have one thing against you. Now it's a, a few things. And you're going to see this progression as we go all the way through these, these churches. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Balaam was a prophet in Israel. Uh, he was asked by the king of Moab, Balak, to, to pronounce curses on Israel. The story goes, he only pronounced blessing. In Numbers 25, 1 through 3, what we read about is Israel. Israel has started to, to drift into uh, sexual immorality and started sacrificing to pagan gods. We think that as, that is the influence of Balaam. We know from the end of Numbers, Numbers 31, that, that Moses himself said that they followed Balaam's advice. So a, 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 in Jewish tradition, one of the causes of apostasy is related to Balaam's advice. And a false teachers often walking in the way of, of Balaam. The, the Nicolaitans were, were like Balaam, and so they encouraged the church to eat food sacrificed to, to idols and practice sexual immorality. It's interesting, when you read this account, there is no specific doctrine that we see here that the Nicolaitans or those who followed Balaam believed. There's no specific thing that we can hold on to. This is what they, they taught. But we do know how they lived, and their lives were, were those who, who were given up to the world. So here we see the church still believes in Jesus Christ, but they were encouraged that it was fine to participate in the cult of worship of Caesar. So eating food sacrificed to idols is probably referred to, to food sacrificed to Caesar in the imperial cult. So by eating that food, you're saying it's okay to worship Caesar. And it's also okay to practice sexual immorality, to loosen the bounds that God has, had ordained for marriage. So get this, the church still believed in the name of Jesus. It says at the beginning, they did not deny the name. They held fast to the name. And yet, there were some in the body who started to practice things that God hates. Now, we don't know the motives here. What were the motives of these teachers? We don't know. They may have been encouraged for their own safety. Listen, if, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Just go along with the culture. It could help them. Hey, listen, if you go along with, with the culture here, you'll gain influence among the, the people of Pergamum. But we know from Scripture that this is contrary to what God teaches. 
when the church gathered at Jerusalem, at the Council of Jerusalem, to, to kind of figure out how do, what do we do with these Gentiles. They kind of came together and agreed, we are going to hold fast to the gospel, and when we come together, these are the things that we're going to do. This is what God's Word says, Acts 15, 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idol and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well for well. Now, the Nicolaitans were also encouraging this participation in the imperial cult, but they were loosening the sexual boundaries of marital monogamy. The problem in this church is that it was permissive. It had a permissive spirit to the culture of the world. Now, we know that we're not called to be conformed to this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are called to, to live in the world, but not of the world. The Nicolaitans were encouraging the church to become like the world. And this is often what is taught to how you make your church grow these days, is you want to become like the world. The spirit of the Nicolaitans is alive in the American church. The churches are loosening the requirements of what is appropriate for Christian sexual ethics. And beloved, it goes far beyond the, the acceptance of homosexuality as a viable Christian lifestyle, but even the acceptance of cohabitation as the norm, even in the church. They divide right doctrine with right living. We can believe this and live this way. Our, our heterodoxy, what we believe, has to, is different from our heteropraxy, how we practice it. And God says, no, they must be together. What we believe determines how we live. This rebuke, hear me, was not to everyone in the church. Not everyone in the church was a heretic. Not everyone in the church was, was eating food sacrificed to idol and being falling into the permissiveness of the culture. And they were not practicing sexual morality. But the church allowed it. Did you hear me? Not everyone was practicing, but the church allowed it. They did not take the reputation of the, of the name of Jesus Christ seriously. Paul offers a similar rebuke to the Corinthians when he rebukes them because they were unwillingness to deal with sin in the church. He warned them that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus also warned the disciples to beware the yeast of the Pharisees that could affect the whole body. The problem, hear me, the problem of the American church is not that there is widespread homosexuality or sexual immorality among its members. The problem is a permissive, compromising spirit with those who engage in such things. It's not the problem that the whole church is doing this. It's the problem is that the church allows it. A permissive, compromising spirit. The Word gives us instructions on how we are called to live and how we are called to conduct our churches. We do not want to be a church of right doctrine without right practice. We want to believe the right things and live the right way. This pleases God. It pleases God that, that our lives match up with what we profess. So what areas of sin are you most permissive of? Where are you most tempted to worldly compromise? And not only you individually, how about us as a body? Where are we most tempted to be permissive of, of sin, to compromise with the world? The desire here to be accepting 
And gracious is a good desire. And I think this is, the, this is one of the, the most challenging things in, in, a, in a strong Bible-centered church like we're trying to be, is that we are passionate for the Word of God. And yet, we look at people who have a desire to be welcoming and accepting, and then we immediately dismiss them. Listen, God's people should be welcoming and accepting. We should, we should invite everyone to come to Christ. But they have to come through Christ. And when you come to Christ, you, you live a different life. So the, the desire that I see in, in mainline denominations, they have a good desire with a wrong application. Because they're asking, they're going beyond the Word of God. We never want to go beyond the Word of God. It is neither right nor good. The next point, the piercing word brings direction. The piercing word brings direction. Jesus here again, he redirects us with his word. He calls the church to repent. Repentance is a turn from trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his word. We must turn from our own ways and trust in God's ways. Now, there are times when we don't, might not understand the what and the why of the Christian life. But when you become a Christian, you are no longer, you no longer have the right to, dis- be, to disobey with Jesus. He is your commanding officer. What he says you should do, you do. Because he is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And it will, be, it will be by that sword that he will judge all governments and all the peoples of this world. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, first of all, let me say welcome. Thank you so much for, for being at a gathering on Sunday morning. I, I pray that you would listen to the gravity of Jesus' words here. And how he commands all people in Revelation 2.16. Revelation 2.16 says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The call of Jesus is very simple. It's a call of repentance. That's what it is. The question is, is why do we have to repent? I think it's a fair question that is utterly challenged in our days. Why must we repent? Well, the Bible states that God is the creator of the world, and all human beings uh, were created by him. And as the creator, he called us to obey his word. He created the world good and right and perfect. And what did man do? We disobeyed God's good word and fell into to sin. Man rejected God's good word and lived for their own desire to be like God. Human beings attempted to usurp or take control of God's authority saying that we no longer have to submit to God, we can live our own, our own way. They desire to follow their own law. And that the world has been corrupted by this selfish pride ever since. So now the human hearts, our very hearts, are corrupted and bent towards self, where we want to live as, as the king and not submit to the one true king. This is why the, the word keeps on saying that there is one God. There is one that has the two-edged sword. There is one that we must submit to. So the Christian worldview says that every human being has sinned and has a sinful heart. Now, of course, Christians acknowledge that even the the worst people in the world have been made in the image of God. So even the people that are, um, are utter sinners still resemble a little bit of God's character. They may show something good in them. And yet at their very core... We see sin, a corrupt heart. Now, the punishment for this sin, the Bible says, is eternal death. 
When an eternal God is offended, then an eternal wrong must be punished as an eternal crime. Now, it may appear harsh that God would exercise such a degree of punishment for sin. An eternal punishment for an eternal crime. But it's only in understanding the severity of God's punishment that we can appreciate the kind word of Jesus. Repent. The word repent is not an angry word. It is a kind, gracious, merciful word. You and I are sinners deserving of eternal hell. And Jesus says, repent. Come to me. Repent. So if you are here and you're not a Christian, I would just say what Jesus has said to all of us Christians who are here. Repent. God sent Jesus to save sinners. He lived a perfect life, and yet he died a sinner's death. Jesus took hell on the cross, our sins, so that we wouldn't have to. And after he was dead and buried, God raised him from the dead. His resurrection opened the door to salvation. We now can be saved. Not because of anything good in us, but because of the goodness and mercy and kindness of God, our Savior. So friends, Jesus is a kind, merciful Savior. He willingly gave himself to take hell on the cross for you. So that you could repent. It's a kind word. And I think that in our day, we we think of that word as a harsh word. Oh, it's so not a harsh word. It is such a kind word. And this one who calls us to repent is is the same one who says, If you do not repent, I will bring war against you. And I will bring war against your church. Jesus desires your peace. But that peace came at a price, the price of his own blood. He offers you peace, and if and only if you repent. This is why he says, he who has an ear, let the, let the Spirit, sorry, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is why I prayed at the beginning, let the Word of God pierce your heart. This is why we pray that God would soften our hearts because we live in our natural state to, to put our, our hands up against God so we don't have to listen to you, Lord. We want to live our own way. Now, as a Christian, many of you are living unto the Lord. Praise be His name. There are some of you, there are areas in your life that you're holding on to and you say, No, Lord, not here. And Jesus says, I want it all. Repent. Come to Him. Well, lastly, let us close with the piercing word brings deliverance. The piercing word brings deliverance. Uh, the surgeon scalpel hurts, but it brings healing. The call of the gospel will bring you worldly pain if you stand for truth. And yet it will be your deliverance. Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. And a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who received it. There's various interpretations, again, what this idea of hidden manna is referring to. Most likely it's referring to the manna that God provided Israel in the wilderness. God gave bread from heaven to strengthen and sustain his people in the midst of their trial. And what has God given us? 
to strengthen and sustain us in the midst of our trial. He gave us the bread from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ says himself in John 6, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Beloved, what God is asking you to do is to feed on Christ by faith. He is the food for our soul that our souls need to live. Now, Jewish tradition said that when the bread of manna fell in the wilderness, that it also came with white stones. In two places in, in, in the Old Testament, in Exodus and Numbers, it, it, it describes the, the manna itself as stones, as these beautiful stones. It was also a, a sign of acquittal. Those of us who feed on Christ, the bread of life, will receive a white stone of acquittal. You will be fully and finally declared not guilty. Not guilty for your sins. Because they have been fully paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His body was broken for us. So therefore you are not guilty. The only way we get the white stone of acquittal is through the broken bread of life. It is only when we continue in faith with Christ do we receive the, the new name of Christ. This new name has multiple implications. I believe it's to fulfill the prophecy made in Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 verse 2 says this, The nations shall see your righteousness and all your kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. The end time people of God fulfill this reality when we are named with God. One scholar notes this. Believers' reception of this new name represents their final reward of a consummate identification and unity with the intimate end time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom and under his sovereign authority. Identification with his name actually begins when Christ reveals himself to his people and they confess his name by faith. Christ has given us a new name now. And only one day will we fully realize what that name means. With that new name, we will enjoy a new status in the intimate presence of God Almighty. Revelation 22.4 says that we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. What a gift. What a gift to be named with Christ. Friends, let us never forget the name of Jesus. Let us forget, never, let the name of Jesus is, be piercing to our souls. When we hear the name of Jesus, that we are, we are pierced to, to bring, back, bring us back from our wandering. Let the name of Jesus be the piercing word that causes our hearts to stir. Let it be the piercing word that ignites our passion to reach the lost of our world and hold fast to the name of Christ. A couple of years ago, we were singing on a Sunday night. It was just kind of one of those nights that the Lord kind of showed up. And we just sang that simple chorus, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 
Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. Beloved, I pray that that name, the name of Jesus, would drive the passion of your heart to live for his glory. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the name of Jesus. We are so grateful that you have promised that you will one day give us the name of Christ ultimately and fully when we meet you in your glory. We thank you that you alone have the sharp two-edged sword, that you alone have the, the power to condemn us and choose no, not to condemn us, to give us a white stone announcing that we are not guilty. God, we are so grateful for Jesus who died and rose again that we may have life. God, we pray that the name of Jesus would, would reverberate in our minds and our hearts so we would continue to live for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.